Well, hey, good morning, Harvest. How are we doing? Good. All right, so quick moment of honesty at church. How many of you are like so pumped to get your kids in children's ministry this morning? So you had like a couple moments of freedom after this past week. Am I the only one or are there more hands there, right? Some of you are like, I've been to all three services this weekend, first time ever. I just had to get my kids away. It's been, a, it's been a long week and we've been cooped up, but I'm thankful that you're here at church. And do me a favor, if you have your Bibles, can you open them up to 1 Corinthians 5? We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 5 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get a copy of God's Word to you. And if you don't own a Bible, consider that our gift to you. We'd love for you to take that home and to keep that. And uh, if you're visiting here, uh, my name is Calvin Wassen. I am the lead pastor here at Harvest Spring Lake. And I'm just so thankful that you're hanging out with us this weekend, that you're worshiping with us. It's a pleasure to have you. Welcome. And uh, if you've been with us this uh, past month in January, you know that we are in the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, we are basically taking a chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians every week all the way up until Easter. We're taking big chunks, we're moving fast through it, but there's a lot of good stuff there. And the past four weeks, we've been talking about what does it mean to be a unified church. Paul is addressing an issue with a young church and he's saying, listen, we are better together. And we have to be on the same page. We have to be pulling the same direction. Churches will not last that aren't unified. And we need to unify under the right thing. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not about the pastor. It's not about the worship style. It's not about the children's ministry. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be on the same page. We are in this together as a family. And in chapter 5, there's a shift now in what Paul is talking about. And what Paul is going to hit on for the next few weeks, the next few chapters, is this idea that our integrity matters. He's going to now press in on our lives and say the, the life that you and I live, both that people see and that people do not see, it matters. It's not meaningless, it's not worthless, but the way you and I live matters a lot. Integrity is not a secondary thing it matters. And, and if I could be just as honest with you as I could right now, this is going to be a challenging few weeks, but a really, really good few weeks for our church. Paul is going to press in on our lives and in areas in our life that we like to keep hidden and private, and he's going to bring those things into the light. But I think this could be really powerful, powerful for us if we're willing to humble ourselves and to submit ourselves to God's word. And here's why I think this is so challenging. Okay, you have to remember this. Um, we live in America in, in 2019. And America in 2019 has a certain worldview that pervades us every single day in so many aspects of our life. Our culture preaches a message. We've got a way we think about the world and ourselves that we bring into when we study God's word or when we think about God because we live in our culture. And our culture's worldview is very, very high on personal freedom and autonomy and affirmation, right? You guys know that in our society, it's like, listen, as long as you're not hurting anyone, do whatever you want. We're, we're Americans. We're the land of the free. We're the home of the brave. I, you know, I eat bacon. I'm an American, right? Freedom is part of who we are. And it's like, you know, humans are who's in charge and who's in control. We should decide what we want to do with our life and our time and our money. No one should speak into that. But instead of speaking into my life, how about you just affirm me and tell me I'm great? Like, wouldn't, be life, wouldn't life be so much better if everyone just told each other how awesome they were all the time and we turned into the Legos movie, you know, everything is awesome, right? Like, that's what we want our society to be. And if we're super high on freedom and autonomy and affirmation, that means we're very, very low on accountability 
on ownership and on correction. We don't like being told that what we're doing is wrong. We don't like being under authority. Like, it's like, no, no, I'm, I'm free. And what Paul's going to say is, is, listen, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are free from the power of sin, but we are not free to do whatever we want. Paul's saying we're not free to live however we choose. Do me a favor, turn to your neighbor and say, you can't do whatever you want. Some of you are like, I tell that to my kids all the time. They don't listen. It's not going to change anything if I say it right now. But like, doesn't that bring up some anxiety in us even saying that? It's like, wait, 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 wait. I've got to answer to someone and how I, how I live matters. How about this? How about I just have this part of me that everyone sees and this part of me that, that's secret that no one knows about. That is so common in our lives. Paul is going to say that how we live matters a lot. And where this becomes dangerous for us is because we have this worldview in our culture, we try to filter God's word through that lens. So here's what I mean, is that we will value certain attributes of God over other attributes. I think a popular example of this is we love to talk about God's grace. And isn't God's grace amazing? And he loves me just the way that I am. And, and he knew I was a sinner and he died on the cross to save me. And God's grace is never going to give up. It's never going to run out on me. And by the way, that's true. And it's amazing and it's awesome. All of us are in desperate need of God's grace. None of us deserve to know God, but God gave himself to us graciously. Okay, but here's the thing. God is also holy. He's not just gracious. He's also holy, which means that he cannot be in the presence of sin. That God hates sin. That sin is rebellion against God. We don't talk about that as much. We love to think of Jesus as Savior, saved me from my sins, died on the cross. I get to go to heaven because I am free in Christ. We don't like to talk about him being our Lord as much because we want freedom because we're Americans and we live in 2019. Listen, look here. I'm absolutely under the belief that there's going to be some of you who walk out of here frustrated this morning because what Paul's going to do is he's going to talk about how do we as a church have the responsibility to deal with unrepentant sin in our midst and in our own lives and in the lives of the people in our church. And some of you are going to leave frustrated. So by God's grace, um, I preach this morning and then tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. I'm on a flight out of the country, right? This was great planning by me, right? Preach Corinthians 5 and get as far away as possible. So if you're angry, email Phil at Harvest Spring Lake. He will graciously answer your questions. Be as mean as you want, all right? You have my permission But what we're going to talk about is the reality that integrity matters. So here's the big idea. It's this. We cannot separate our spiritual health from our integrity or our integrity from our spiritual health. If we are not living lives that are submissive to God, seeking to glorify him, seeking to please him. And listen, none of us are perfect, right? All of us sin and fall short of the glory of God all the time. There's not anyone in here that made it through yesterday without falling short and sinning and being selfish. Like, none of us are perfect. But if we're not pursuing the Lord, seeking to have victory over sin, seeking to honor him with our lives, we can't argue that we're spiritually healthy, right? Our relationship with Jesus Christ is not just a feeling that we have when we sing songs. 
It's not just a theological or mental exercise. Here's what I believe, A plus B equals C, so I'm good. No, no, no. A relationship with Jesus Christ is a relationship with the creator God of the universe that is absolutely meant to show itself in power and in life transformation. It has to change us. It has to be continually changing us. And there's some of you in here, it's like, man, my relationship with Jesus changed me five years ago. Is it still changing you? Or are you relying on what God did and not pressing in onto what God wants to do in your life? Okay, so here's the question. Why does integrity matter? And before we jump into 1 Corinthians 5, I want to talk about why integrity matters. Here's the first reason. Um, we carry the responsibility to represent Jesus. And this is amazing for me to think about, but 1 Peter 2.9 says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 says, Therefore I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Like, think about this, church. This is amazing. Jesus has chosen to stake his name and his reputation with us. He has called us into his family. He has said, you are going to be my people, my chosen race, my family. We carry the responsibility to represent Jesus well. Just like when an Olympic athlete competes, he carries the flag or the banner of his country. We as followers of Christ, we carry the banner of Jesus Christ. And that is a heavy responsibility. The gospel is the most compelling story in the entire world. There is no other message that has or has the power to radically transform people's lives like the good news of Jesus Christ. The only thing that mitigates the power of the gospel is when the lives of the people sharing that good news isn't compelling at all. Would the people in your life who don't know the Lord notice or see anything different about you and your relationships in what you're serving and what you give your time, talents, and treasures to. We have to live with integrity. It matters. Here's the second reason it matters is because integrity is a worship issue. Integrity is a worship issue. And listen, I think worshiping together at church is so important and it's so valuable. We need to come together and raise our hands and surrender and sing to Jesus. But you understand that worship doesn't end here in this place. In Romans 12, it says, I appeal, therefore, to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So when we come together and when we sing, God's presence is here and he's moving and he's with us in a way that's different than at any other time during the week because God inhabits the praises of his people. But when we leave this place, worship doesn't stop, but we worship God by living lives that are of surrender to him, that are sacrificed to him. And Paul says that is our spiritual worship. We are worshipers created to worship. We're all worshiping something. Are we worshiping God with our lives? Okay, so Paul is going to deal with how do we handle when there is unrepentant sin in our church? And what we're going to do is start with a case study. Because this was going wrong in the Corinthian church, and Paul has to address a specific issue. Look at verse 1. 
He says this. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Okay, so here's what's going on. From what we can deduce from this passage is there's a man in the Corinthian church who is sleeping with his stepmother. And the reason we know that is because he doesn't say a man has taken his mother, it's his father's wife. So we believe that his father was remarried and an affair happened between the stepmom and the son. And most likely the stepmother then divorced the father and is now living with the son. And this is not a one-time sin. This is not something that someone like nobody knew about. This is open. This is happening. This is who we are. This is what's going on. And we don't feel bad about it. We're not repentant over our sin. This is what it is. This isn't like a guy lost his temper once or someone told a lie. This is open, ongoing, rebellious sin happening over and over again. And the reason Paul says, listen, this isn't even tolerated by pagans, because under Roman law, incest was illegal. So Paul's like, listen, even your culture would look at this and be like, no, 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 this is wrong, this is too far. And you remember, Corinthians were known for for their sexual exploitations and and their sexual sin. And they would like, even then would be like, no, 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 you shouldn't do that. And look what he calls the church in verse 2. It's interesting. He calls them arrogant. And it's not just the man who is in the sin. He calls the whole church arrogant. He goes, the fact that you're allowing this to continue is arrogant. Okay, why does Paul call them arrogant? He calls them arrogant for two reasons. First of all, he's like, you're living like you're playing a game and that God doesn't see. And he's saying, listen, do you really believe that God doesn't know what's going on and he's not seeing how you're interacting with this person and pretending like nothing's wrong when something's very wrong? He's saying, and and like, isn't this true of us in our lives? That when we live with sin in our life that we're not dealing with, that we've become complacent with, aren't we kind of communicating to God, like, I just don't care what you think. I'm going to do what I want to do. The other reason he says they're arrogant is because they are abusing God's grace for their own selfishness. and, And by the way, listen, church, this happens all the time, even in this place. Right? There's this sin that everybody knows about, but no one's dealing with. And what they're saying is, is listen, God's gracious. He, he, he died for our sins. It's cool. We're all under grace. And now, does it play out in extremes in this church all the time? No, but it plays out in different ways. I'm, I'm going to pick on our 20s guys for a second. And I love our 20s ministries. But um, it is not uncommon in our 20s small groups for guys to be like, yeah, um, I'm really, really struggling with, with lust and, and an addiction to pornography, right? And then rather than rooting that out and getting after it and calling it is what it is, which is sin and addiction, guess what the guys do? They're like, man, everyone struggles with that. I struggle with that too. It's all cool, dude. It's every man's struggle. You know, we're just going to try to like navigate this together. It's all right. There's grace for that. God loves us. How are we called to navigate sin in our church? Because Paul says to not deal with it is actually arrogance. It's abusing God's grace. It's minimizing God's holiness. And it causes us not to represent Jesus Christ well. 
So what Paul's going to do in verse 3 is he's going to introduce a, a term that is referred to as church discipline. And he's going to lay out, what do you do when there is someone with unrepentant sin in their lives? He's saying we have a responsibility to navigate this corporately. Look what he says in verse 3. He says, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Isn't even the word judgment like a trigger word in our society? When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present and with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It's like, whoa, Paul, <laughs> calm down. You're talking about delivering people to Satan? Like, what do you mean? Like, what are you talking about? Well, what he's doing is, is he's talking about church discipline. And I need you to look here for a minute. Many of you have grown up in churches where you've seen church discipline executed before, and it was unloving, and it was harmful, and it was shameful, and it caused a lot of damage in your church, and maybe even in your own life. And church discipline is never an act of anger or of shame. It's actually an act of love and pursuing someone who's in sin. So what I need to do is we need to pause for a minute, and we need to talk about what church discipline is and how this plays out in the life of our church all right, so what is church discipline? Here's what it is. When someone is walking in known unrepentant sin, it's the church and the community of faith basically saying, we love you too much to continue life as normal. We're not going to pretend like everything's okay, so we're going to bring about a crisis point to call you back to repentance. All right, so before we talk about what that looks like practically, very, very quick, you need to understand this would never be done quickly in our church. We would never put someone under church discipline unless the leadership and pastors and elders reached out to them and was like, hey, what you're doing is wrong and you know it's wrong. Please repent of that sin. Return to the Lord. We, we, we want to celebrate God's work in your life. We want to see you have victory. We would reach out multiple times. This would never be done quickly. And it would only be if it was an obvious and apparent violation of God's law. It would never be over a preference or an opinion. Right? Like, I would never be like, hey, listen, because you're a vegan, I'm placing you under church discipline. I would never have to. Being a vegan is discipline enough, right? <laughs> I, I would never be like, hey, I don't like the music you wear or listen to or the clothes you wear or your, your preference on this or that. Anything that's gray, we would never execute church discipline on. It would only be clear, open, unrepentant sin. I'm not turning from that. I'm not changing. This is who I am. I don't care what God's word says. I'm going to do it anyways. Okay, so here's a question. Have we ever had to execute church discipline? Yes. In the eight years of our church, we've had to execute it multiple times, and this is how we deal with it. We deal with it within the sphere of relationships. Um, I don't think it would be right in a church with two campuses and five services and 3,000 people to, to show someone's picture, to bring someone up on stage and be like, this is so-and-so who you've never met and air all their dirty laundry. It wouldn't be right, it wouldn't be kind, it wouldn't be loving. So what we do is, is we would go to the people that they're in community with and in relationship with. So, so here's an example I'm going to use. This has happened multiple times in our church. We've had people leave their spouse because they're, they're, they're running off with someone else. 
and they've said, I know that it's wrong, and, and I know that this isn't what God wants for me, but I'm miserable in my marriage. I've found my true soulmate, and, and, and I'm in love, and this is going to make me feel happier. I think this is what's better. So I'm leaving my family, I'm leaving my wife and kids, and I'm going to go run off with someone else. And we've met with them, we've pleaded with them not to do it, we've cried with them, we've prayed for them, but it became very apparent that their hearts were hard, that they were going to go down this direction. So what we would do is, is we would go to their small group primarily, and we would say, hey, I want, you to bring up to, I want to bring you up to speed on what's happening in this person's life, and we'd say, we're not telling you to shun them, and we're not telling you not to love them, but here's what we're saying, when you see them, don't pretend like everything's okay. When you see that person, be like, hey, listen, I love you and I want what's best for you and you are running from the Lord, please repent of your sin and turn from it and get right with God. Okay, it's an act of love that is pursuing repentance and reconciliation. Listen, church, we know this, right? That there is nothing worse for our soul than when we're not dealing with sin in our life. Like when there's seasons in my life where there's stuff going on in my heart that I'm not dealing with, I don't want to come to church because right, I don't want to have to face it. I don't worship anymore. I, I, I cut myself out from community because I don't want to have to talk to other people about it. And, and I just generally become miserable because God's spirit is pressing in on my life and convicting me, but I'm pushing away from that. And when there's unrepentant sin in our lives, our family see it, our kids see it, our friends see it, our coworkers see it, we're damaging not only our lives and our relationships, but the name of Jesus Christ. So what church discipline is is saying, because we love you and because we're a family, we want to speak into this. We're not going to let you continue to hurt yourself and pretend like we don't care or we don't see. If you're tracking with this, Sam, tracking. It's an act of love. David when he was sinning with Bathsheba, he was saying, when I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away. And what church discipline is, is we don't want you to waste away. We don't want you to run. We want you to return to the Lord and experience his grace and forgiveness and love and transformation in powerful ways. So what is repentance? Repentance is when we confess our sin. We say, this is what I did, and it was hurtful, and it was wrong, and I've sinned against the Lord, and I've sinned against you, please forgive me. Um, repentance is also um, owning the sin. It, it, it's my fault. It, it's not my family's fault. It, it, it's not my um, upbringing's fault. It's not my work's fault. I made these decisions. And, and then repentance is finally turning from that sin. I'm going to put some things in my life that's going to make me not run this way again. It is an ownership of our sin. That's what we want to see happen. Okay, what's this whole thing about delivering someone to Satan? Like, that seems pretty extreme. Like, like I like delivering pizza, maybe, but I don't like delivering people to Satan. That sounds rough. Well, here's what that is, and this is how this plays out. And in our counseling ministry, we've had to do this on multiple occasions where, where someone is in sin, and they're like, I, I, maybe it's an addiction to a drug, and I, I know I shouldn't do this. I know I'm dependent on it, but I don't care. I, I want to keep drinking or I want to keep using. and I'm going to do it. I don't care what you say. And there'll be times where our counselors will be like, listen, we love you, but we've been talking about this for eight weeks. You're not returning from this sin. So here's what we're going to tell you to do. Go run that thing down. Go keep drinking. Go keep using. See where that leads you. And what we're going to do is we're going to pray that God would bring you low 
so that you would get on your knees and turn to him and find the victory and healing we want you to have. Like, we're never going to, like, chain someone up and force them to do anything. And sometimes as the church, all we have to do is we have to say, listen, we love you, and, and, and you, need to, you need to go pursue this, and we're going to be here for when things fall apart. Listen, all of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. Right? There isn't, again, anyone who made it through this morning yet without sin. The issue is, is our heart repentant and humble, or is it hard? So let me use one more example, and this happens in pre-marriage all the time. I don't know if you guys know this, we do a ton of premarital counseling. We marry like 30 or 40 couples every year, it seems like. It's a huge thing. Anyone in here been married in our church or getting married in our church? Yeah, I'm looking at you guys. Like, this whole family got married in our church, and um, this is what we do in pre-marriage counseling. Listen, we live in a culture that has so much sexual brokenness. And so oftentimes, people come in together and their, their sexual history um, is um, jaded or, or it's broken. And so we'll be like, hey, are you guys sleeping together? And they'll be like, yeah, we're, we're sleeping together. And so we'll open God's word and we'll say, listen, sex is designed for marriage. And it's a great thing and it's an awesome thing, but it's a thing that is to be submitted before the Lord. And sex outside of marriage dishonors the Lord. And we want you to have a successful marriage. And part of being a successful marriage is being faithful in the process. So are you willing to stop sleeping together until you're married to honor the Lord in this and to pursue purity and let your wedding be a celebration of you guys pursuing the Lord? Most of the time people are like, yeah, you know what? We know it's wrong. Um, we're we're uh, ashamed of it, but we want to have victory. Would you help us? And it's awesome. We help them. We wrap our, our arms around them. We get them in community. There's accountability and it's a great thing. That happens 90% of the time. 10% of the time, when a couple is sleeping together and we open God's word and explain that it's sin, here's the response that we get. Well, Cal, it's uh, America and it's 2019. You're making way too big of a deal about this. And we love each other. We're consenting adults. We're almost married. How about you just lay off? We're going to keep doing this. We're not going to stop sleeping with each other. You see how the heart is different in those two situations? So it's not the issue that they've fallen short or they've sinned, but if they're repentant and humble and want to have victory, we're going to help them and support them. But when their heart issue is one of, no, I'm not going to change, you just have to deal with it, then here's what we say. We love you guys, but we can't marry you. Because we're not going to give our stamp of approval and ask God to bless your marriage when you're not being faithful in the process. We love you too much to pretend like everything's okay. And look here, it would be way easier for me to be like, ah, it's no big deal, you're getting married, don't worry about it. I would have so many less difficult conversations if it was like, ah, we'll just let that slide. But it wouldn't be loving. Because I want success for your life in marriage, and, and blessing follows obedience. So it's our job to press in on these things. Listen, the Bible refers to us as a family, and just like any healthy family is going to have seasons of discipline, so is the church. But we discipline not out of anger or shame, but because we love our children and we want to see them grow and mature and have victory, right? Same with the church. All right, Paul's going to keep going here. Look what he says. I love the first sentence in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. All right, thanks, Paul. Appreciate that. That's super helpful. Then he says this. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. What are you talking about? 
For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, but the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So now Paul starts talking about bread. And it's like, what are you talking about? Well, listen, if you were Jewish, you would have known exactly what he's talking about. And he uses the word leaven, and leaven refers to yeast, and yeast was always a picture of sin for the Jewish people. So let me show you how this played out. The biggest festival in the Jewish calendar is Passover. They still celebrate it today. And it is remembering when uh, God set the Israelites free from captivity in Egypt. Israelites were slaves in Egypt. God sent Moses, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Uh, the Pharaoh wasn't pumped about that. God sent 10 plagues. The last one was the Passover. And he sent the angel of death into Egypt. And he killed all of the firstborn children as punishment for not yielding to God. But God protected the Israelites. And he said, listen, here's what you need to do. You need to take a lamb that is without blemish, a spotless lamb sacrifice that lamb and spread its blood over your doorpost and when the angel of death sees that he will pass over your house and your family will be spared it was a miracle that allowed the israelites to be set free now the day after passover is celebrated it starts a new festival called the feast of unleavened bread and so what the jewish people do is they go for a full week and they eat nothing with yeast and what they're doing is they're saying, out of celebrating, God, what you've done for us, we want to remove the sin from our lives. We want to be a people that follow you. We want to remove our idols. And we want to honor you by removing sin, even in how we eat, the things that would represent sin. We want to get rid of it because we're grateful to you and thankful and we're celebrating what you've done. Okay, and here's what Paul's saying, and this is brilliant. He's like, listen, all Passover was, was a picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our sacrificial lamb, that God didn't spare his firstborn son, that his son came and died on a cross, and his blood is what washes us clean of our sins. So he says, as we gather together as a church, we need to celebrate not with old leaven, with old sin, unrepentant sin, but celebrate with unleavened bread, sinless, a heart that is pure and sincere. Does that make sense? And look at verse 7 again. I love this verse. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Here it is. If you, have, uh, if you take notes in your Bible, underline this. As you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He says, listen, your new identity is you are free from the power of sin. And what Paul is trying to explain to us is that we are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. All right, look here, church. See, here's what our sin nature tells us. Our, tin, our sin nature says that we're trapped. That we're always going to struggle, that we're always going to fall short, that we're never going to have victory, that the same things that we dealt with five years ago, we're going to deal with in five years from now, and that we will always be enslaved to sin. Okay, but the cross screams a different message. The cross screams that sin and Satan and death have been defeated. And we are now children of God. And as part of that inheritance, we receive the spirit of God. And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells inside of us. And sin doesn't get the final word. We are free. We are empowered by Christ. 
We are not slaves to sin, but we absolutely can live lives that are transformed and have victory. And what integrity is, it's having the diligence to fight for what we have already received in Christ. Christ says you are free from sin, that sin does not have control over you. And what integrity says is I'm going to believe the gospel. I'm going to believe what Jesus says about me. And every day I'm going to fight the good fight to live in the power of Christ and not in the power of my sin. I'm going to draw near to Jesus. I'm going to starve out in my heart the things that cause sin, the pride, the bitterness, the greed, the lust. I'm going to starve those things out and I'm going to feast on the goodness of my relationship with Jesus Christ and his spirit and his presence and his power. And I'm going to choose to worship even when I'm tempted because I know I'm not defeated. You see how this is worship, right? Integrity is saying this is what Christ has accomplished for me. Now I'm going to have the boldness to fight for it and walk in it every single day. Look here. God takes hearts that are angry and he gives us new hearts. He gives us hearts of peace and of love and of kindness. God takes hearts that are bitter and he changes our hearts. He gives us hearts uh, of forgiveness and love and patience. God takes hearts that are lustful and he gives us new hearts. He gives us hearts of purity and of selflessness and of self-control. God takes hearts that are consumed by what others think of them, hearts that are people-pleasing, and he gives us new hearts, hearts of confidence and of boldness, and hearts whose identity is rooted in what Jesus Christ says about them, not what their neighbor thinks of them. He changes us and transforms us. Look here, church, and if you don't believe that that's possible, you've already lost, because you've failed to believe that the gospel is the power for transformation. Integrity is fighting for what I've already received. Look at verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So he's referencing an old letter here that, that we don't have. But he's going to clarify something. He says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world, right? He's saying you'd have to become like Amish if you weren't going to deal with anyone who sinned. Look at 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler, and not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have with judging outsiders? It is not... Though, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. All right, so he's trying to give us a right perspective here, and he's trying to give a clarification. Apparently, the church was very, very arrogant in, in judging people outside the church in their culture, but they weren't dealing with sin in their church. And Paul's like, no, no, it should be the exact opposite. He's saying, listen, the people in our lives... Our neighbors, our co-workers, our family, our friends who don't know the Lord. Why would we expect them to live like they do? It's not our job to cast judgment on those who don't know the Lord. Our, our, our job with those who don't know the Lord is to love them, be kind, be patient, and point to our hope in Jesus Christ. I think about how Jesus dealt with the woman at the well. 
right? This was a woman who had a history of just sexual sin and sexual brokenness. And Jesus doesn't start the conversation by condemning her at all. He's like, hey, you're thirsty, huh? And she's like, yeah, I'm at a well, dude. And he said, well, listen, if you knew who I was, you would know that I could give you living water and that you would never have to be thirsty again. And then he says, listen, I know what your past is like, and I know that you're running to men to try to find satisfaction and security, but true security can be found in knowing your Savior. And that is received with love and hope and joy. And she leaves saying, listen, you need, to, you need to meet this man. You need to know Jesus Christ. It's our job to give the hope of salvation. It's not to condemn. Okay, but church, I think we haven't done a good job of this. And in fact, I think for many, many years, the church was very good at condemning culture and not dealing with issues in the church. Uh, this past year, I was at the auto place. My car was getting some work done. And there was a Time magazine that the whole, like the whole magazine was dedicated to the life of Elvis Presley. And um, my aunt growing up was like in love with Elvis. She was convinced he was alive. She told me that all the time. So I've always had this fascination with Elvis. And so I started reading the magazine. And did you know, there's like parts in this magazine. Did you know that when Elvis would come to a city to do a concert, churches would gather together and do a rally just to condemn Elvis Presley? Pastors would get up, and when they preach, they'd say things like, listen, when Elvis Presley shakes his hips, demons are coming out of them, right? <laughs> Sounds like they're just jealous that they couldn't shake their hips, like, that would have been me probably. Um, but they were like, he's evil, and rock and roll is evil, and Satan lives in the beat of rock and roll, and it's going to get you. And it's like, listen, it's not our job to condemn culture. Or to hold people who don't know the Lord to the standards we hold our brothers and sisters in Christ. But look here, church. We do have the responsibility that when our family, our brothers and sisters are walking in unrepentant sin, we need to be willing to love them enough to not just turn the other way and to deal with that issue. You know, I think of churches like Westboro Baptist who are known for their hate and known for their anger that can't be us. Okay, look here. And when we deal with one another's sin, can I just make this very clear? That doesn't mean every time somebody has a bad moment, we turn into the sin police. This isn't to shame or this isn't to elevate ourselves. But again, this is under the backdrop of unity that we're in this together. We love one another, so we're willing to fight for one another. All of us have received grace. All of us need grace, and all of us are still a work in process. Amen? So obviously, 1 Corinthians is, is a heavy chapter. And um, what I want to do right now as we close is I want to get really, really practical and really, really helpful. And what I want to do is I want to talk about us. How do we, Harvest Spring Lake, as a church, fight for a culture of integrity? If it matters, and if we believe we represent the name of Jesus Christ, and this is something we need to take seriously, how do we fight for this as a family? Here's the first way. Um, there needs to be a healthy dose of fear and humility in our lives. Fear and humility. About three years ago, my family moved into a new house. And our house in our living room has a fireplace. And it's one of those fireplaces that has a glass panel on the outside. So when the fire is going, that glass gets really, really hot. And uh, we told our kids, hey, listen, when the fireplace is on, be careful. Don't run by it. Don't ever put your hands on the glass. You're going to burn yourself. And about three weeks into living there, my son Bo was running around like a madman, saw the fire, went to the glass, both hands on the glass. Right? That was the result right there. 
right? He is very sedated by painkillers right there, giving thumbs up, but it was a brutal injury. He had second degree burns all over both hands. He literally had a blister on his hand that went from his thumb to his pinky, just one big bubble. It was awful. And so what happened is, is for the next two years, my wife is like, no one's ever turning on the fireplace ever again, right? She's like, we're not turning it on. We're not going through that again. And like, it would be 9.30 at night. Our kids would be in bed. And I'd be like, hey, babe, do you want to turn on the fireplace? And she's like, nope. And I'm like, the kids are in bed. Like, no one's going to get hurt. She's like, I don't trust you, right? She's like, we're keeping this fire off. And then like just this year, she started to relax a little bit and turn the fire. But here's the truth, Bo, he doesn't go running by the fireplace anymore. And our kids, they treat that with caution because they remember the pain that it caused. And church, look here. We need to live with a healthy dose of fear and humility that all of us are one bad moment, one bad decision away from ruining our lives, ruining our testimony, and ruining our relationships. That none of us here are above or strong enough that we couldn't fall into sin that would cause great shame to the name of Jesus Christ. There has to be a healthy dose of fear and, and humility. I need God to help me, because on my own, I'm only going to fail. Second thing we need, and this one's huge, and this one's harder than the first, it's this. We need to have an openness to correction. We need to have an openness to correction. Can I ask you a question? How do you respond when someone calls you out? When someone speaks into your life, when someone says, hey, what you're doing is wrong, how do you respond? And I think what's natural in that moment, you feel it in your heart, your blood pressure starts to rise and you get defensive, right? You're like, who are you to tell me what I did wrong? And, and we look for reasons to justify it or to attack the person that's correcting us. It's like, you're going to tell me I did something wrong. You can barely button your pants half the time. Like, who are you to speak into my life? Like, that's our sin nature and our pride bubbling up. The question is, in that moment, do we yield to our defensiveness or are we going to yield to the spirit and say, you know what? I'm not perfect and I do sin and I do have blind spots. So rather than being defensive, I'm going to look for truth in what's being communicated to me. Just this week, I got an email and it was from a family in our church, a sweet family who has attended here for a couple of years and serve here faithfully, and is part of our family. And they wrote me an email, and they said, Cal, you said something in a message you preached two or three weeks ago that really frustrated us. And um, I don't think you meant to hurt us, but what you said did hurt us. And we've been praying about it. We've been kind of wrestling with back and forth. Do we bring this to you? Um, but we'd like to meet because um, what, what you said hurt. And um, right initially, like, I'm, I'm not pumped to get that email. So what do I do? I don't respond right away. I take an hour, and I pray about it, and I ask God, reveal to me if there's something I need to own. And guess what? The Spirit was like, yeah, Cal, you, you could have said that better. You could have said that more loving. You could have understood more people's perspectives before you said that thing. And I wrote back, and I'm like, you know what? Thank you for telling me this. Thank you for having the courage to, to email me and speak out. And listen, I'm not perfect, and every weekend... There are things where I would, if I were to look back, I'd be like, I should have said that different. I should have said that better. I'm a work in process. I'm trying to grow. I didn't mean to offend. I didn't mean to hurt. But if I did, please forgive me. And they were like, you know, just so gracious and, and forgiving in that. But, but listen, we have to have the humility to be open to correction. Hey, kids, students, 
How's your relationship with your folks? Is everything cool till they tell you to do something? Or till you get in trouble, then you freak out? Or are you open to correction? Do you believe that your parents are a gift and that your parents love you? Hey, men, does your family walk around on their tiptoes on eggshells around you because if they try to say anything to you that you don't like, you're going to blow up? Have you created a culture of fear in your home because you are unwilling to receive correction? It's a problem. And if that's you, it lacks integrity. Do you view correction as loving or do you view it as angry and condemning? We have to have an openness to correction. Here's the next one. We have to have an urgency to change. I think one of the most dangerous places we can be is just to be okay with where we're at. And it's like, man, God has done a lot in my life and I'm good. I'm not going to worry about the things in my life that I'm, that I'm still dealing with, that I'm still wrestling with. I've done enough. I'm better than most people. I'm a, a solid Christian. I'm all right. It's a dangerous spot to be. Listen, in 10 years from now, I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better father. I want to be a better pastor, leader, and friend. But that's only going to happen if I'm willing to wage war around the sin and complacency in my heart. There has to be an urgency there. We can't be the same people tomorrow that we are today. Are we willing to fight the fight of integrity? And then here's the last one. The last one is shared ownership. Shared ownership. We are a family. And part of being a family, look here, church, you have to get this. Don't check out on me. Listen, part of being a family is we don't just own our own spiritual walk, but we are there together and owning our brothers and sisters in Christ's spiritual walk. All right, and this plays itself out in community. Let me ask you a question. Who here is in a small group? Raise them up. See all those hands? By the way, if you're not in a small group, you got to get in a small group. It's how you're going to grow. It's, it's, it's amazing. But look here. How do you view your small group, those of you that raised your hand? Is it just about you and your marriage and your family and your walk with Christ? Or are you like, man, I'm there with my brothers and sisters. And we're going to lock arms and I care about the growth of the people I'm in community with. Well, what does that look like? Let's start with this. Ask real questions. Hey, what, what's really going on in your life? How can I pray for you? How, how can I encourage you? Marty, where are you struggling? Where, where are you weak? How can we encourage you? How can we put our arms around you and love on you? Ask real questions. And then here's a big one. Follow up with one another. Like, it's so encouraging to me when I'm in my small group and our small group meets on Saturday nights when, like, I'll, I'll ask for prayer on something. And on Wednesday, I'm getting texted and emailed. Hey, just want to let you know I was thinking about you this morning. Prayed for you. Hope that situation goes well. Hope you're experiencing victory. I, I love you. I'm with you. Are you there for the people in your small group? Pray for one another. Encourage one another. Listen, all of us have seasons in our lives where we just feel defeated. Sometimes the best thing we can do for one another is to just encourage each other and say, listen, we're not defeated. Our victory is already secured in Christ. So we can keep on going. We don't have to give up. We're in this together. You have brothers and sisters who love you. Integrity matters. And if we're willing to believe the gospel and to fight to live lives that bring glory to Christ, that we worship together in this place, and then we worship as we leave, 
man, are we going to shine a bright light into our dark world. And I'm so excited to see what God is going to do in and through us. But we have to be in this together. Integrity matters. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to close a little bit differently um, this morning. And I'm going to pray. And then we have an extended worship time as we close. We're going to sing two songs, not one. And here's what I would say. Um, this isn't the moment to bail early to get to your car. Like it's 50 degrees outside. You'll be fine. Your, your car's fine. No one's stolen it. But here's what I want you to do. We need to have the humility right now. Like, listen, how nice is it that I don't have to preach this message and end with putting someone under church discipline? This isn't a problem we're currently facing, but what I want to do is I want to guard against this becoming a future issue. And the only way we can do that is check our own hearts and get to a place of humility before God. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want us to take a moment to meet with the Lord in a real way. And are you willing to ask yourself the hard question, what are the things in my heart that I become complacent with that are sin in the eyes of God? Have I been okay with being bitter? Have I been okay with having my eyes on my finances more than on the Lord? Have I been okay with neglecting my family? Have I been okay with, with uh, not controlling my tongue? Have I been okay with allowing my eyes to wander? Church, let's not be arrogant. Let's be humble. Let's seek the Lord. So what we're going to do is, is I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing a couple songs. And listen, if you want to stand and raise your hands, I want you to stand and raise your hands. If you need to sit down and continue to pray and meet with the Lord, do that. Both services, we've had people come up to the stage and kneel. That's awesome, too. I want you to meet with the Lord like you believe that he's here, that you believe he's moving, and that he is powerful to save and to change. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. God, I'm thankful for your word that you talk about difficult things with such clarity. And God, I'm so thankful that you care about us enough not to leave us in our sin, but to call us to righteousness and to call us to follow you. God, we can't do it on our own. And I'm thankful that you're patient with us when we stumble over and over and over again. Would we be patient with one another? But would our hearts be humble? Would we fear you more? Would we be open to correction, urgent to change? And would we be with each other, owning our walks? We love you. We need you. It's in your son's great name we pray.